one of the things I have noticed as I um, read, uh, you know, articles around online and in papers and magazines is that people really like to study religion. They like to study whether it's good for you or bad for you, what it does to your brain. They do MRIs of monks, you know, and, and statistical long-range studies of how healthy you are. And, um, and the great thing about being part of an ethical culture congregation is that we get to claim all of the positive studies, whether it's about um, being in a religion or not being in a religion. <laughs> So, um, so it was going around the sort of Sunday school parents was an article about raising your children without God and without traditional dogma, and all of the parents were saying, oh, this is so great, we're doing it right, that's super. And then there was another article, and then there was, am I still on? And then there was another article that went around about um, how good it is to be in religious community, how you live longer and you're healthier, and, you know, we'll take that too. That's also us. So it's a, it's a, it's a good benefit of membership, actually. You get to claim every single one. Now, if there's any studies about either of those being bad for you, obviously they're erroneous. Um, bad science. Bad science. I really do think, actually, that religious community makes you healthier. I believe those studies because they just kind of make sense to me. Or really any kind of community. I'm sure there are some of you in here who are thinking, why is she talking about religious community? What does that have to do with me? And then the other half of you who, you know, have inked on your, on your arms, this is my religion, my religious community. But any kind of community, I think, does tend to make you healthier particularly in society these days. We talk a lot about how the D.C. area is an especially transitory society. You know, people tend to come and go. Very few of us grew up right in this area, and so we don't necessarily have extended family here. And I hear over and over again from visitors and folks who are beginning to become new members that one reason that they came to West is to find a community like that. They're yearning, I think, for the kind of small town experience that either they once had or they saw on TV and think is possible. You know, they're yearning for that. I think it's actually a reason why we have a a high number of small-town Midwesterners that actually are members here as well, folks that did grow up, perhaps, with that kind of community and are looking to recreate it now. So what is real, true community, not just the TV kind? And how do we get to be part of it? It doesn't happen automatically when we walk through the door, even into a community like Wes, where we work so hard and do such a beautiful job of being welcoming to folks, getting them the blue name tag and saying hello and introducing ourselves. There's still a step beyond that, to go from that sense of welcome to the sense of real, true community. There's something there, a need to proactively invite and be invited to accept the invitation. Peter Block is an author and kind of a social thinker who wrote a book called Community, the Structure of Belonging. He wrote that communities are human systems given form by conversations that build relationships. 
human systems given form by conversations that build relationships. I've mentioned, I know before, that one of the things I did over my sabbatical was go out to Los Angeles for a community organizing training. And it was an amazing experience. There were people from all over the country and all over the world gathered together, and and, um, trainers that had been doing this kind of work for decades, some of them, and um, and doing really, you know, sort of uh, what you think of as community organizing work, you know, really getting kind of in the mayor's face and getting things changed and and, uh, going up and... and, um, and not, not advocating for, but standing in solidarity with to change budgets and to change laws and, and to change their neighborhoods and the world. And I, I remember sitting there in my little group with one of the trainers who'd done all of these amazing things in the world, all of these really kind of um, radical things. And he said, the most radical thing that we do in community organizing, the most radical thing is that we talk to each other. We have relational meetings, they're called. And they're really the building blocks of community organizing. That's it. It's so simple. Conversations. People talking to each other. I do this a lot. I call people up in the community that I think I'd like to know, and I'd like to know about their work and their passion and what interests them. And so I call them up or I send them an email and I say, "Um, would you like to get together and, and talk with me? And the thing is, it, it is radical because it's, it's really counter sort of society's message. I think often when I extend that invitation to someone who's not familiar with that kind of conversation, that kind of organizing, I get back uh, an email that sort of asks what my agenda might be. You know, well, what's the, what, what is it that you wanted? Could you send me a bullet point of what you wanted? And maybe I could do that for you or I won't. And I'll have to write back, and, or they say, oh, could, he, could we just have a phone call? Maybe we could just chat by phone for five minutes, and I have to write back and say, what I'd really like to do is sit down. I would just like to tell you who I am and learn who you are. And maybe that's all. Maybe then we just know each other, or maybe not. Maybe we find that there's some passion we hold in common, or some hope for the world, or some anger, and there's something we can do from that. So I've been thinking a lot about that sort of, that idea that, that the most radical thing you can do is just talk to someone, really talk to them. And I've been thinking about what it is we hear in those stories when we meet with other people and how that might relate to us here at Wes. Because I think, I think it's fair to say that I've never had one of those conversations where I don't feel any sense of connection with the person I'm talking with. There's always something we can connect around, whether it was our upbringing or someone in our past who had influenced us or something that we care about now. But it's also fair to say that I've never had one of those conversations where I agreed with everything that the person said. Where, where we were completely alike. That would be sort of like a weird alter universe. Actually, I've heard about it. One of my, um, there's a little girl in my daughter's um, brownie troop who goes to an Episcopal church, and apparently there's a, a young woman priest there named Amanda who looks exactly like me, according to the seven-year-old. Um, so it's possible that I will someday meet her, and the world will, like, explode in a vortex, and then, I don't know, Doctor Who will come through a TARDIS. I don't know what will happen. But mostly, outside of worlds exploding into vortexes, mostly you find, 
right? That here's a person in front of you who has some similarities and some differences. The kind of power, you know, when, when we talk about those one-on-one meetings, we, in, in the community organizing world, they're a way to build power. Not, um, not power the way we think about sort of, you know, almighty and powerful, but power the way people create power. Our connections with each other, when we act together, we are powerful. And it's, that kind of power is called relational power. We build it because we're in relationship with each other. And relational power is, is not just the ability to act, which makes sense, of course. You know, you're connected to other people. Of course, you can act for, for good in the world. But it's also the willingness to be acted upon. Isn't that interesting? It's the willingness to be in the course of that conversation and in the course of that relationship to be transformed. The Reverend Gretchen Woods puts it this way, when I let a stranger into my heart, I let a new possibility approach me. When I reach past my own ideas, I begin to stretch myself open to the world, and this opening of my heart could change everything. That's pretty frightening stuff, she writes. You can't ever be the same if you start doing that kind of thing. So there's something in this conversation that not just connects us to each other, but that highlights the differences between us, the important key differences, the way that we are not the same. I think it's easy in a community like ours where many of us find, you know, feel as though we finally found the right community for us and, and we didn't, I hear all the time, right, I didn't know a place like this existed, you know, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. It's easy then to imagine that the experience that I have is exactly the experience that you have or the experience that you have to imagine that we're pretty much the same all here and part, I think, Part of our task in community is to remember and remind each other that that's not true. That, in fact, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds and ideas. We have all sorts of different thoughts swirling around in our heads. And that part of what is beautiful about this community is precisely that fact. It's that each of us are having our own particular experience. It's actually, that's a distinctly ethical culture idea. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, talked about the unique spiritual personality in each person. He, he was a Victorian writer, as you remember, so sometimes he uses kind of Victorian language, and it's, um, it's pretty heady at times. But he really believed that our job in the world, our whole job, was to bring out the unique spiritual personality in another person and then in ourselves and to create a world where that was possible, where our particularities of self were able to fully flourish. He was not a sameness kind of guy, you know? He was not just all think the same thing. In fact, he founded ethical culture partly so that people who thought all sorts of different things could come together and act as one. And I would say we're only able to do that when we truly know each other. There is room here in this community for difference which is a good thing since it exists whether we make room for it or not, right? We might as well let it pull up a chair. 
There's room for dissent on justice issues. I think about the 1960s when Ed Erickson was the leader here and uh, was leading the congregation forward on the um, uh, working against the Vietnam War, except that the, not the whole congregation was going forward working against the Vietnam War. There were quite a range of opinions in the beginning of that work especially. We were big enough to hold that. Not big enough in numbers, I don't mean, but big enough spiritually, big enough emotionally, mature enough to hold that. There are other ways that we build community here too, other ways that we get to know each other in all our particularities. I think about the pastoral care associates who reach out to members who are in need, but who also sit every Sunday now after platform just waiting for folks to come and say, I need something. Or I think someone else needs something. Could you help me figure out how we could help them together? I think about all of our many small groups. You heard about one of our discussion groups during the candle lighting today. And we have deepening circles and and small groups that meet for biology discussion. Peter Block, who wrote that book, Community, the Art of Belonging, he he wrote, instead of surrendering our identity for the sake of belonging, we find in the small group a place that can value our uniqueness. He's writing about community in a really big sense. He's talking sort of about citizenship in our country, how we change the community that we live in from a civic level. But he believes that small groups, intimate conversations, are the transformative agent, even for changing a whole city or a whole country. I think here, too, about our neighborhood potlucks that meet. We have one coming up in October, October 11th creating bonds that extend beyond our friendship circles. When I was a young adult in D.C., I moved here right after college and um, attended All Souls down the street, our kind of sibling congregation on 16th Street, the Unitarian Congregation. And there was a young adult group there, which I was part of, and, um, and we had monthly potlucks. And then I got to know some of the other young adults a little bit better, you know, as one does, and became friends with some of them. They were, there was a big range of ages among the whole young adult group. So I became friends with a smaller subset that was really close to my age in the same place in life. And we would get together then outside of those monthly potlucks and, and, uh, you know, we became friends. And, um, and then we would go to the potlucks and, um, of course we were friends. So we would talk to each other. You know, you talk to your friends, right? When you're at, Um, an event like that when you're at a party. And after a few months of that, one of my friends, a wise woman, said, you know, I love seeing all of you. I love being what she called it, the PWPLs, the people we particularly like. (laughs) And we did. We particularly liked each other. In fact, several of them married each other. So (laughs) they really liked each other. She said, I love being that group, but I'm thinking that when we're at the potlucks, we need to make sure that that's not our space in particular. That space for all the young adults in the community who are outside of our age range or we don't know yet or who came in for the very first time to that potluck. And so we made an intentional effort not to hang out with our friends. It's actually really hard (laughs) to do that, you know, but we made an intentional effort 
And I think even now that that was someone who knew what it meant to build community. That was someone who knew what it meant to be community. I want to add a little side note. I had a request from, um, from a West member to address not just how to accept an invitation and how to extend an invitation, but also how to decline an invitation. And I thought that was a great question because, you know, sometimes we do decline invitations. We talked about that a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. This has been a busy couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago, as we did Invitation to Justice, we talked about the idea that you can't accept every invitation that comes your way. And so I wanted to just mention that, that to me, the best way to decline an invitation, which sometimes indeed we do, is to be grateful for the invitation, right? To show your gratitude that you were included in that way. Sometimes to articulate what you're saying yes to instead. To be able to say to the person, you know, I would love to do that. It sounds lovely, but I need a night at home by myself. Or I've already made another commitment and I'm excited to be doing that, so I won't be able to join you. Or simply to say that you're unavailable. Sometimes it's good to just say, I'm so sorry I can't be there. Full stop. (laughs) It's the excuses that so often make it more awkward as you decline invitations, you know. Oh, I would really love to be there. I'm so sorry. Oh, I feel terrible. Oh, no, no, now it's your problem that I'm declining and you feel bad for me, feeling bad for you that I didn't. So that's my side tip. That's my my note on declining an invitation. And I think it was a great question because the ability to decline is actually embedded in the concept of invitation. You know, an invitation is different than a command performance. You know which times you're invited to your mother-in-law's home for dinner and which times you will be going to your mother-in-law's home for dinner, right? Those are two different times. They might both be fun, but they're different. (laughs) Peter Block wrote, invitation is the means through which hospitality is created. Invitation counters the conventional belief that change requires mandate or persuasion. Invitation honors the importance of choice, the necessary condition for accountability. I loved that. It honors the importance of choice. Now, there's a myth out there, and I believed it to be true for quite some time, that ethical culture folks were not really great at extending invitations to other people to join them in their community, you know, that we were a little bit awkward about evangelizing, we don't really think that was a good idea, you know, we certainly weren't going to be knocking on any doors. Well, I used to believe that. I want to invite you to look around the room right now, because it seems like we may have gotten better (laughs) at extending invitations. I don't know if you have noticed... (laughs) But there have been some changes in this community. There have been actually a lot of changes in the last few years. We've sustained a a major change in staff and the sadness and loss that goes with that. And then, too, we've had changes in programming and formats. And we've had changes in who's here, the number of people that join us. 
I want to invite you to raise your hand if you're new here in the last few weeks, if that was your first time coming through the door in the last few weeks, if you're willing. And now raise your hand. You can keep those raised. Raise your hand if you're new in the last few months, say the last, you know, four to six months, if that was the first time you came in the door. And now raise your hand if you're new in the last few years, if that was the first time that you came in the door. Look around. Yeah. We are past, I think, the point of thinking our community will not change. Actually, in reality, we were past that point when we allowed humans in, right? (laughs) Once we decided back in the founding in 1944 that there wasn't going to be a robot community. But we're past the point even of our community feeling sort of pretty much the same as it used to feel, you know, pretty much the same number of people, different people because people come and go, but pretty much the same. I am so glad for the people whose hands were raised that I know I don't want to go back to that community, but I also don't want to go forward without noticing Change is hard. It's different. There's a loss with it, right? Our Sunday school attendance has um, almost doubled in the last year. We had 81 kids here on the first Sunday, on kind of opening Sunday, the first Sunday of the fall season. And there are amazing and wonderful things that you can do when you have that many children in a Sunday school. We have uh, tighter age groupings, so our second and third graders can be right together instead of being in a larger age grouping where it's harder to get the right material for the kids. But there's also loss with having that many children. It's different. It's not quite as intimate or cozy. They're getting a little crowded (laughs) in some of their rooms. And so I think it's important for us, as we experience and navigate what this change is, that we stay in conversation with each other and that we allow ourselves to both do the celebrating and to notice the hard places, the rough edges The Committee on Community and Leadership Support, it's called the CCLS because no one can remember what those uh, letters actually stand for. The CCLS has a feedback center. They started it about five months ago, just before I left, maybe four months ago, before I left on sabbatical. Um, They have a feedback center right outside platform, right near the Pastoral Care Associates, actually. And, um, And someone sits there every Sunday, and they're just there to hear you, really. Lots of times what they hear is, you know, oh, I loved the platform, or, um, oh, I couldn't hear the platform because of the sound system. I think they've gotten about 15 comments about acoustics in the lobby. So you can keep sharing those comments. That's good. But once it's registered, we're working on it. But they're also a place where you can share not just technical experiences, the sound system, and why don't we have the chocolate cookies anymore? We heard that a lot, too. I think those were... (laughs) Possibly, possibly mostly children, I'm not sure. Um, but it's also a place where you can say, I'm having trouble. I, I'm wanting to connect more deeply, and I, and I need help doing that. It feels different here. Can you help me? They take that feedback with names so that we're able then to follow up with you to build that relationship, to have the one-on-one conversation, if that's helpful to figure out how to be a community together. 
As you might imagine, the board and the staff have been thinking a lot about the numerical growth that we've been experiencing and thinking about how we manage that numerical growth while also growing together, you know, so that everybody grows along with each other and so that our relationships and our connection to each other actually deepens. We've been reading a great book called The Myth of the 200 Barrier. I think the whole board's read it now, and about half the staff were working our way through it. And it's about community. It's about how to um, navigate change and growth in community, numerical growth especially. It's a, a great book that I recommend. One of the things that it says is that there's a certain number of people that we are able to be connected to. It's an international number, actually. If you look at sort of villages that are, um, that are, that are organized, if you look at communities that feel comfortable with each other, and that number is 150 people. That's the number. Those are the number of relationships that we can easily track and be in a space with together. And that used to be the number of people that came to West on a Sunday. Ch- everybody, children through adults, all of the bodies in the building, right? Used to be about 150 or a little bit less. And now, it's not that anymore. <laughs> it's more like 210, 200 some Sundays, 220 some Sundays. That's a lot more bodies in the building, And so some of what we have been thinking about is how we manage that. Now that we are a size where when we all gather at the same time, that is a lot of people to track. I mean, you can tell, right? Out in the lobby, it's a lot of people to try to have conversations with. You can't even see the people, like, through the crowds of people. You can't get to the cookies. I mean, let's focus on the important thing, right? (laughs) So we're trying to figure that all out. There are big potential solutions. There are small, little solutions. There's all kinds of things that we're talking about. And with all of them comes a little bit of anxiety, right? That the change might not be exactly what we want or might not work out right. I remember a story that Marty Kaufman told when he and Tony did the invitation platform on September 6th, the multi-gen platform. There was a story about all of the animals in the jungle who were invited to the lion's wedding. And uh, each one of the animals, the monkeys and the elephants and bears. bears, but why were there bears in a jungle? Isn't that weird? All right, well, anyway, uh, the bears were probably kind of confused to find themselves in the jungle, so we're not going to even worry about them. But the, the elephants and the monkeys, they were invited, but they were scared of the lions. And so they said no, they didn't accept the invitation. And they all missed this amazing, wonderful wedding, this huge, beautiful party. So here we are. People have been accepting our invitation to this party we're having here. They've been coming through the door, and I don't think they're likely to stop all of a sudden. I hope not. And so the question for us, I think, is how to continue ourselves to extend that invitation and how to accept it, how to make sure that because, not that just because we're a little scared like the monkeys were, that we don't miss the party of the decade. It goes back, I think, to the basics, to that radical act. 
to relationship and one-on-one conversations. There's all kinds of ways, as I said, that we might work on that, that we might grow together, that we might knit ourselves yet more closely together, even as more folks join us here at this party. But the core piece is that we continue to know each other, really, to know each other's stories, our similarities, our differences. A colleague, Linda Hart, a Unitarian Universalist minister, shared a story with me. She said she was traveling across the country one, uh, one summer and was having a hard day that day. It had been a, a, a hard driving day. And she and her friend who were traveling together stopped somewhere in Montana for the night. And while they were walking to dinner at a local restaurant, whatever they could find, someone in the town crossed the street to stop them and invited them to an accordion jamboree. (laughs) Now listen, some of you might be thinking, I'll never stop at a small town in Montana if that's what happens. (laughs) Well, they had dinner, and they went to the accordion jamboree because I guess it sounded really great to them, which it could be, right? What could be wrong with like 20 accordions in a room? She said, I've never known why he stopped us and invited us, but it was for us a gift of tremendous grace that he did this. I've always thought it was the way we should be about inviting folks to our communities. What happens when we accept the invitation to really be with each other? Can we change ourselves, change the community, Can we be transformed by those conversations? I am not by any means an anti-Facebook person, as you know, if you are my friend on Facebook, where I post about every 10 minutes or so. But there are limits, you know, to that kind of conversation. There are some conversations, some knowing of each other, that really only works when we are face-to-face. That, I think, is what a community like West provides. That is what, why it makes us healthier and live longer and changes our brain waves. Everything that the scientists would tell us. And if we truly believe that, we will not want to not only accept the invitation ourselves, we will want to extend the invitation, that invitation to community. We'll want to extend it to people that we love, to people that we wish we knew better, to people that we think might find a home here. And we will want to extend it to each other over and over again.